Campbell Smith, welcoming everybody into episode 42 of Campfire Conversations. Run, wild horses, run. A little Aaron Watson, run straight to the glue factory for all I care. Uh, I'll explain more <laughs> in this episode as we check in with uh, an old friend, Charles Whitwam of Howl for Wildlife, a new friend, Everett Headley, also with Howl, and Russell Kuhlman. He is the head of the Nevada Wildlife Federation, and we're going to discuss this bill, SB90, which is bad, bad news for wildlife across the board when you're talking about, well, really any wildlife. I was going to say Nevada's cervids, mule deer, elk, desert bighorn, antelope, but when you have 60,000 wild horses raping and pillaging the public land resource of a state, there ain't any true wildlife that wins. The only thing that wins is the horse. And everything and everyone else, including conservation, loses. I read this uh, call to action on Howell's Instagram page and immediately reached out to Charles and was like, we got to talk about this because, yes, Nevada is the poster boy for wild horses. But this is a problem across much of the West. Without further ado, let's bring on some folks who know a little bit more about it than I do, uh, and especially in uh, Russell's situation. Uh, but yeah, let's get this thing going. Campfire Conversations 42 underway. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you all enjoy. Uh, it's great to have all of you guys here. Thanks for making time. Thanks, man. Thanks for having us on. It was my pleasure. So our listeners are probably familiar with Hal at this point, as Charles has been on the show uh, multiple times, and I've encouraged you guys, if you're not already following their social media stuff, then you're doing yourself a disservice. Make sure you take care of that. Not really familiar with Russell, so you've got the Nevada Wildlife Federation cap on. I see a nice white tail and uh, a fox, a red fox, uh, full body mount there in the background. I approve of all of these good things. Uh, what do you do, uh, Russell? Yeah, so my elevator pitch, I guess, is uh, I originally grew up back east where the whitetail and red fox came from. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've been hunting, we'll say for a long time and currently live in Reno, Nevada and work as the executive director for the Nevada Wildlife Federation, which is a affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation, which um, some of you may have heard of. But really here in Nevada, our main issues is dealing with uh, public access and making sure that uh, Nevada's wildlife and habitat are hopefully trending in the right direction. And currently they are not for a multitude of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, in mm -hmm. the next hour or so, but really just trying to be the voice for a, a healthy Nevada wildlife and, and habitat. So what are my options as a non-resident? Nevada, and I don't remember why, but when I was selecting all the states, I'm going to build points in out west. I threw Nevada and Arizona into this crap heap and was like, no. And Arizona, it was because I had to buy a $300 license every year just to apply. And then I was like, oh, and then it's going to take me 25 years to draw the damn tag. And I, and I was just like, I'll just, if I'll just do it the other way. Or if I want to spend that much money, I'll just go on an outfitted hunt. Like, 
Um, plus, I'll be 60-something years old when I draw the stupid tag. Who knows if, my, if I'll even be able to hack it in the backcountry at that point. Um, what are my options as a non-resident for hunting big game in Nevada, first of all? Yeah, that's a good question. I think first, if you're going to apply for Nevada as a non-resident, which I've done for you know a handful of years before I moved here, you got to kind of put it in that category of the the long game. You're, you're mm-hmm. not going to hunt Nevada every year as a non-resident uh, for a big game. Yeah, you know, if you want to chase chucker or quail or uh, Himalayan snowcock and the rubies, you probably could, but all those hunts are, are certainly not guaranteed as far as success either. But you know, we give out more non-resident desert sheep tags than any other state. Uh, so, you know, for those diehard sheep hunters, Nevada definitely should be on the list. But again, uh, you know, I probably won't draw in the next 20 years as a resident. So everything is is definitely the, the long vision. Uh, but, you know, we actually have an increasing elk population, uh, you know, still super hard tag to get, but some of the, the biggest uh, elk in the West, uh, you know, some of them are hiding here in, here in Nevada. Mm-hmm. And then if you do want to go guided, uh, which I did back in 2019 as a non-resident, uh, for mule deer, your odds increase significantly. If you mm-hmm. kind of join that guided pool, uh, for mule deer here in the state, uh, you know, admittedly are just like every other state, our mule deer populations, uh, kind of going down in terms of, of quality. Uh, but there's still some monsters lurking out here. So, you think about these these states where it might take you 20 years to draw a you know in a trophy bull unit or uh well shoot it's going to take longer than that for sheep like you said it might be you might not draw in the next 20 years i don't even know how many points you have i don't think we're all i'm looking at our faces here some are younger than others but we're all i'm going to say late 30s to 50. I don't know. Charles maybe is uh, on the <laughs> bringing up the rear there. I don't know. Um, okay. I'm 41. And I'm thinking we're all like 15 years too late to this party for the before before it because we're t- I'm talking about supply and demand, right? That was before it really became a you're gonna have to wait 25 years to draw situation. And on the sheep, I think that that numbers just keep keeps going up. So I wish when I was 15 years old, I would have started applying for these things, but I had no idea. I even liked it at 15 years old, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. And you're right. And, uh, Endow, the Nevada department of wildlife just conducted our draw, uh, I think earlier today. And mm-hmm. they said that they had a record number of applicants. I think we got over 85,000 applicants in the state this year, which, uh, is the highest they've ever been. So I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could have had to go back 15 years ago and, and started applying for sure, right. just like everyone else. But uh, I think the secret's definitely out here in Nevada. If you want a good quality animal and willing to wait a couple of years, uh, certainly the state to do it in. But uh, agreed that uh, you know we are the driest state in the union, so we don't have all the, the extra moisture and rain like some other states that can you know produce animals that allow a, a non-resident to hunt every year. But you can still come to Las Vegas and see Fremont Street, which is cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you can come to Las Vegas and go to the, the Desert National Wildlife Refuge just north, which was the, the source population for a lot of Western states sheep right now. Um, you know, that was designated uh, back in 1937 by Roosevelt as, you know, the last sanctuary for desert sheep. And uh, mm-hmm. I was just there last weekend and 
uh, saw some use up there. No, no, no big Rams, but they're certainly out there. Hmm. Well, so Charles, you had mentioned before we started recording that you just got off of uh, a, like a virtual meeting or what, what were you, it was like with the, uh, I don't know what, is it Nevada fishing game or Nevada fish and wildlife or whatever your state agency is called. But I think it was something with this bill that we're going to talk about today, SB 90. Uh, what were you doing? Um, it was in the a legislative uh, committee was um, discussing this bill and they had testimony on both sides it, that happened yesterday. Okay. So um, I was like, oh, I should watch this and see what happened. I, I made it through the uh, proponents of the bill. I didn't get to the opposition, but I believe um, Russell said he watched the whole thing. So he could probably give an update on, I don't know if they had a vote or if they, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but that's what I've been doing for the last hour. And just <clears throat> listening to the proponent's testimony was interesting to me, which we can, which we can get into, but maybe um, Russell can let us know, was there a vote at the end or are they moving this on or what's, what's going on? Russell, you're on mute. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no to both of those. Uh, I think, thankfully, uh, they did not vote on it, and they're not moving it forward. Uh, basically, what the the Senate Natural Resource Committee did was just hold a, a public hearing to educate both the public and those decision makers on that committee. Uh, so it was just heard. You know, both sides were given opportunities to uh, voice their concern. And they have until Friday to to move it. And if nothing happens to this bill by Friday, uh, it's effectively dead. Woohoo! Yeah. So Everett, let's uh, let's give you the floor here because you wrote the call to action for uh, for Howell, which is how I found out about this bill. And I read that thing, and my blood started boiling. And it took me back to um, cougar hunting in Colorado, and we're on BLM land, and I'm on a mule. And as the outfitter called me, he's like, I know you're from Texas, buddy, but you're a dude unless you've ridden a horse a lot. And he's like, I was like, no, nah, I haven't, you know, I've ridden horses in my life. But he's like, okay, then I'm putting you on a mule because the mule is going to be way steadier and, and uh, less nervous, not as nervous as one of these horses. And so he puts me on a mule and I think it was the, this, this wild stallion comes up. I'm, I'm like, first of all, I saw all these the horse feces just everywhere and then you start looking and the brows is like starting like destroyed and he's like oh it's these damn horses the state won't let us do anything with them they just run roughshod all over the the blm and uh and then this stallion starts you know it's it's i think it's sizing up his mare is what it's doing making making everybody and the horses uncomfortable and it wasn't afraid of people obviously so it was just a bad situation all the way around. And, and so now I'm reading this article and I'm like, that this this really started to piss me off. So with that being said, Everett, uh, walk us through exactly what SB90 is. Yeah, you know, we, if, if you followed Western conservation for, you know, a handful of years, wild horses are not a, uh, and, and let me say feral horses, not wild horses. And I don't know if we want to get into that distinction. Maybe I'll kick that back over to Russell for, some education for us, but if you've been following the drought that's happening out West and how all the ungulates are having problems with finding feed and, and, and water, I mean, everybody's just kind of suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you add into the equation, what feral horses and burrows are doing in Nevada. It's, it's a, it's a catastrophe. 
and and it's really at a a tipping point right we we have uh, so many of them, we can't keep up with the population through adoption, through uh, taking them off range and corralling them. And, and uh, you know, the latest statistics are telling us that every four years, that horse population is doubling. And and the other uh, stat that kind of comes to mind is that these horses and burros, they're eating over twice the forage that all the other wild animals eat combined. So the picture that we're painting is just this bleak denuded landscape and if you've ever been to to in the driest state in the country yeah it already (laughs) looks like you know no offense russell but there's places that kind of look like the lunar landscape right and so if you look at the 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 graphs and the pictures and everything and and you see just how far we have uh come with 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 the loss of habitat and mainly due to these wild or feral animals it there should be a call to action, right? So I'm glad to hear that when you read the the H, uh, SB90 call to action that I wrote for Hal, uh, it made your, your your blood boil, you said. And, yeah. and that's kind of the action that I'm, I'm wanting to get, right? I give you the facts. I give you the situation. And, and I'm not trying to paint it one way or the other. This is simply what's going on, right? And then we have a bill that comes forward. And, and what it wants to do is celebrate the presence uh, of the of the wild horse, I'm sorry, the wild mustang as the state horse. But nowhere in this bill is there any mention, consideration, or thought given to the ecological impact that these animals are having and the negative trends that we're starting to see that we're tying directly back to feral horses and burrows. And mm-hmm. so it's a bill that really kind of uh it it it, it doesn't think about everything else that's happening, it just, it, it's really emotion-based, right? So you get this Disney-esque kind of uh, mentality going on, right? Like, here's this beautiful stallion, you see the movies, you want to, you know, put some kind of pedestal out there to, you know, look at our horses, they're so pretty, but there's nothing that understands uh, what's going on on the backside. And so when we put the action together, we really wanted to make sure people knew that there's a real negative side to what's going on here that's not even being thought of it's not in the bill and 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 if we were to pass this it would gloss over everything else that's going on and so future management of these horses would just become that much more difficult if Mm -hmm. if we were to pass sb90 so that's any of y'all have uh like elementary aged kiddos no not anymore (laughs) russell you uh sorry i i missed the question do you have kids uh, I do not. Um, I got two dogs running around. That's why I had okay. to go off. Uh, well, I can tell there. you from experience that the kids are still using glue in school. So, I mean, I have a solution for the problem, but nobody wants to acknowledge what this, you know, the solution would be. Um, but the horses just need to be killed. I'm not saying all of them, but you can't. It's like uh, it's take take your pick. Botswana has uh, 150,000 elephant. That's 75,000 over there carrying capacity. Well, it's the same thing. They're destroying the brows. They're eating themselves out of house and home. Oh, and by the way, uh, the, the, the animals that drive conservation funding, mule deer, elk tags, sheep tags are suffering because these horses are getting a free pass. No. And I don't know if in 2023, there's any way we could convince people to let us go in there and shoot these things out of a helicopter but that's what needs to happen and and it reminds me charles of uh, the same thing we've talked about with the this bill specifically from what you just outlined everett it doesn't sound like there's any recourse for management it's just 
when you make something the state bird or fish or in this case horse whatever you protect it and that means across the board no killing of it it reminds me of the the initial plan for wolf reintroduction in colorado which we've been fighting tooth and nail is like okay well we we're fine now you voted you morons voted to introduce these reintroduce these things okay that cat's out of the bag now we have to have an actual uh, piece of legislation that when the time comes when we reach the quota, whatever it is, the goal is the management goal, then now we can manage these things. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, just to kind of add in uh, some background information as well. Uh, SB 90 was officially introduced by a group of fourth graders. Um, huh. and I'm pretty yeah. confident they don't have any knowledge of this issue. Uh, and there was, We'll say some maybe wild horse advocate organizations that helped them guide the, the drafting of that bill and certainly paid for the the lobby fees. Oh, uh, but it was pretty clear that leftist propaganda gets get some kids in here and have them be the face of the whole movement. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean it was it's they've been using that playbook since since day one is let's rule wildlife management with emotion and not mm -hmm. science and. Uh, listening and, and watching that hearing yesterday uh it was a pretty thin veil of exactly that's what they were trying to do uh and it was good that you know the the opposition you know called them out on that for exactly what you said you know this has nothing to do with wildlife management or making sure uh the horses are safe you know they're going to use this as saying look nevada voted to make this the state animal and we shouldn't allow one horse off the landscape and they're going to use yeah. it as an extra buffer to impede the BLM or any other uh, agency land managing to remove those horses because they're always going to fall back on this SB 90 and say this is what Nevadans wanted when realistically uh, you know that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, yeah so watching that today I, I only watched the proponents and a lot of the organizations um were certainly the the horse advocates um and any, they any of the ones that we are familiar with maybe not in the horse advocacy it was like sierra club mm -hmm. or um center for you know biological diversity well, or so, so no i'll 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 touch on that but no not sierra club but it was um like the wild horse i i don't know what their acronyms are uh -huh. but what's actually interesting about the Center for Biological Diversity is we've been, I don't know, I think we're probably three actions in now for feral horses in Arizona. And Robin Silver, who is the president of the CBD, is for removing the horses. Mm. And I've actually gotten, it's crazy, but most of the information and the pictures that I get are from him, from the CBD. Wow. which is crazy yeah. because they understand the habitat loss that these horses are causing um i think with them it's it's um oh god what animal is it it's not the trout well i don't know it's one of the animals that they're super concerned with but they're recognizing that the the horses are are basically causing this other animal to go extinct um and and plus the habitat loss so the CBD is an interesting one with this, with this whole. That's horse. encouraging. I mean, I'm going to give them well, basically zero credit across the board, but yeah. that's interesting because at the same time, 
you would think that an organization like that would be like, well, if, if the horses destroy the habitat, then we can get we can do away with hunting. So maybe they actually do care about the environment, unlike PETA or HSUS, where their their end game is end hunting at all costs. Well, Robin lives there in Arizona, and he sees it firsthand. So maybe that has something to do with it. I do know there has been some internal shakeups with uh, with CBD because of the uh, the stance that they've taken, but. Uh, just an interesting, uh, interesting tidbit there on the CP mm. because I don't think we agree with them on on anything else. Um, right. And when I first found out, I was like, "Wait, this is the CBD, like the the CBD mm. the Center for mm. but like this is where we're all right. We're getting our information from them, wow. and it's and it's backed up from with twenty three other hunting organizations in Arizona who are actually on this working in collaboration." in a sense with the CBD, which is, which is interesting, but it's this. So what a lot of people are saying in Nevada on this are, Oh, we have, you know, our relatives come in and they want to see the horses and then they go to Lake Tahoe and then they gamble. And <laughs> we have, um, uh, Asian airlines is going to set up a thing just for just to fly in people because they want to see the horses. And um and then you have people one lady she said we have no skin in the game here i'm like yeah you're right you have no skin in the game you know that's that's an interesting statement i don't think she realized what she was saying but what they were saying was we like to go see the horses oh they're so beautiful let's take pictures and then let's go gamble that's it they're not looking at the habitat they don't even care they don't even know that what habitat is mm -hmm. going out there and seeing the the trout that's 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 being affected by this or the habitat for for sheep or or elk or mule deer or any of that um and it, so it's just interesting it's it did remind me of the ballot box um initiative where coloradans were like yeah let's have wolves here who, yeah. want, who doesn't want to see wolves they look they're cool those people that they're voted awesome. in favor of well they'll never see a wolf they'll they, never they live they'll in never boulder and denver and they will never see one yeah, and it's just it really is an emotional um uh vote with and that's about as far as it gets is just mm. it's just emotion and it's it's not very deep whatsoever. Um but again, you know, on its face, all right, it's the state animal. Um one of the legislators was like, I don't really care if you want to call it the state animal or not. That's fine. I don't care. But we do need to focus on, you know, this is gonna raise it on an emotional level to an iconic species more than it already is i mean it's already on i think a coin there i mean it's on everything in nevada but now it's going to be a state horse um and you just know that's going to make it way harder for any removal of horses in the future and the groups who were there the horse advocate groups who were there they're using words like trophy hunting and i'm just going okay yeah mm. yeah i know yeah you've already lost me because you're just you're going down the same road like I know where you're going to go if you get this bill I know what you're going to say if you get this bill um and real quick just like how we did this um the way I like to do any action is I want to know if the bill has any legs at all like I don't want to waste people's times because there's thousands of bills out there and we could act like the sky is falling on every bill yeah. uh, just to get support or whatever and um so I reached out to Everett. I'm like, man, I don't have any partners at all in Nevada. I don't really know anybody there. Do you know anybody? And like the next day he was like, yeah, I've made some contacts. And then, so that's how Everett found Russell. 
this is actually my first time talking to Russell or seeing him because mm-hmm. I just handled it all. And um, I'm like, I just need to know if it's an important issue because people are hitting me up on it. But, you know, should we get involved? And uh, it came back where, yeah, we should. So then that's where we pulled the trigger on this. Um, it's kind of kind of how we did this. And Everett, where do you live? Uh, the best state in the union, man, Montana. So, I mean, I already out- outlined my experience with Colorado and those damn wild horses. Um, does Montana have an issue with this? I mean, it, it's not unique to Nevada. They probably have the, the worst case scenario, but there are other Western states that are dealing with this. And I, I had an interview with someone, I don't know, it was a handful of years ago. And we looked at the overall number of wild horses on like public land, BLM, national forest, whatever. Uh, and, and a lot of them, like you said, have been taken to non-kill facilities, which the amount of taxpayer dollars we're being we're spending on these stupid horses to live in a, a taxpayer funded non-kill facility is astronomical it's just none of it makes any sense and it's just because they're they're a horse and much like a dog you know we can't we can't oh we can't do anything we can't kill we can't say we're going to kill the horses but i don't know you know montana we have a few hundred i think uh wild horses they're not a big deal they're they're really small populations where they they are mm-hmm. and and so it it doesn't crop up on our radar really uh but across the west you know you you do if, especially as you go further south you have more more animals uh across the landscape and kind of answering your question you asked earlier which is what do we kind of do you know until we get sportsmen um engaged, informed, and involved, we're going to continue to have this, this problem, right? Because horses are the, they're, they're charismatic megafauna, just like, you know, grizzly bears are. And, you know, you've ever heard a biologist talk about the, the eyelash idea behind animals, the, the longer the eyelashes are, the more cuddly they are, the, Mm -hmm. the less likely there's going to be any action on them. Right. And so we really got to have an education effort that that starts with sportsmen and, and we begin to understand the situation is it is dire and we're at a precipice where if we continue down this road we're going to lose desert bighorns elk other other species that really need the landscape that are already hurting right and and so when you start to to frame it in terms of not only do we have too many horses but we have them in a way that if you like the hunting that you have in Nevada you really need to understand that, that it's being eroded by the populations and it's not just Nevada, right? It's other States that have mm-hmm. this, this same feral horse problem. So what we do at how is so vital because we give you education, right? Uh, I have, when I write my, my, my actions, I put links on there. And so if you want to dive deeper into this, here's a YouTube video, here's the actual law here are, um, you know, like we, we've got Russell's letter to the editor, things like that, so that you can go and educate yourself. But if we don't have sportsmen stepping up to do what we're doing here, we're, we're, we're not going to win the battle, right? How many horses are we talking about, Russell, first of all? And then second part of this question is donkeys get lumped into this thing, too. And now if they if they were to protect the horse, make it the state you know, animal or whatever, they're not going to say, but also we have to make the donkey the state animal. So... Can we kill the donkeys at least? Like, I mean, <laughs> I keep going back to killing them because that's the only thing that makes sense realistically. But nobody, I, I don't even, like I said, I don't think that's even realistic in 2023. The backlash is going to be astronomical. But let's go around in a circle and we come back to the same answer. There's too many horses. It's costing tax pay, taxpayers too much money. There's a logical solution. 
Yeah, and I should probably uh, flag that kind of early on to give your listeners a, a frame of reference. Uh, so Nevada is home to about two thirds of the entire West's uh, feral horse mm. and burrow population. So we're we're pretty much um, you know definitely the leader in that. And you know back in the the seventies, the eighties, when we weren't in a horrible drought, you know the land could support using the best science, roughly anywhere from 11 to 13,000 horses on the landscape. Um, and hmm. that number uh, made sure that other native wildlife like deer, antelope, bighorn, sheep, elk could also live uh, without too much competition. The last aerial surveys that the BLM and Endow have done have ballparked it anywhere from 50,000 to 60,000 horses. So you know, on the landscape during the one of some of the best decades of moisture and rain, the the scientists said you know thirteen thousand max horses. Now you know we're we're hitting the national news for how bad our drought is. Lake Mead's you know revealing dead bodies since the seventies, and <laughs> we have fifty thousand horses on the landscape. And so, yeah, I mean, you could probably go out there with a helicopter and remove as many as possible, and you still wouldn't make a dent because, as Everett mentioned earlier, uh, it can double its population in four years. And, you know, running around with a dart gun trying to dart 50,000 horses is not only impossible from a financial standpoint, but uh, you're just never going to get them all. And so, I mean, that's the the issue that we're dealing with right now um, with just them being there being too many horses on the landscape. So you you took us back to the answer without saying it is that the really killing them is the only is the only viable solution. Uh, yeah, I mean, lethal removal is is definitely a tool I think we wish we all had. But, you know, this all got started with Congress in 1971 passing the Wild Horse and Burrow Act, which, you know, pretty much outlines you can't kill them. And, and so it's going to take an act of Congress. That's a federal law? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I guess uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that. But it makes sense. Which yeah, but I, but I think, and Russell, I, I think there's a threshold, though, right? Because they're saying so throughout all this conversation, they're saying that the feds aren't doing their job that like they're admitting, you know, so I think they are just for the just for the show. Um, but they're saying there are too many horses and yeah, we are trying to dart them and all that. But the feds aren't doing their job on the BLM. It, so what does that mean? Like, is there an option to get to to kill them or no? Like you cannot kill them whatsoever. Because I've heard both sides of that. I, I, you know, reading the the Wild Horse and Horse, Horse and Burrow Act, uh, you know, I don't think this the federal or state agencies can kill them. I, I think any horses that are being you know sl- sent to slaughter or anything like that are kind of being done through a loophole that yeah. you know a lot of people are trying to close as well. Let's uh, open know, that for, bad boy up. <laughs> yeah. So, I, for example, one of the loopholes is. Uh, the the government will actually pay you $1,000 if you adopt these horses and keep them for a year. So what people were doing were adopting them, keeping them in a pasture, getting their $1,000, and then shipping them to Mexico and Canada for slaughterhouses. And so that's one of the loopholes. And that's one of the, um, you know, conspiracy theories that you hear, you know, oh, they're sending them to slaughterhouses. You know, the agencies aren't. It's, uh, you know, people trying to work away around that. Um, and I'll just, I, I do want to mention But that this solves too. part of the problem. If they're getting rid of the horses, great. 
and they're getting a thousand bucks yeah not uh something you want to tout but you know any horses removed from the landscape because of their overpopulation uh certainly i don't think is going to be a a huge negative impact but uh just to kind of give everyone a sense of what we're up against uh you know you mentioned sierra club and cbd uh and in my opinion they don't hold a candle to the organization and fundraising that some of these wild horse and burrow advocates are on you know they're on a whole different level and they have Mm -hmm. certainly cracked the secret of mixing emotion with fundraising and how to get as many lobbyists on a team as possible without actually doing anything other than putting up hurdles for the federal agencies to get the work done. Uh, and, and that's a big problem that we're trying to face is, you know, the, the BLM does have the tools. Yes, it's probably going to be expensive to, to have all these horse roundups, but uh, these wild horse and burrow advocates will put up any roadblock if they can and, and tie up things in the court for as long as possible to make sure the actions on the ground aren't taking place in order to remove those horses. So uh, we're not, you know, essentially playing with a bunch of mom and pop organizers. These are are very well organized and very well, uh, you know, I don't want to say informed because a lot of their information, in my opinion, is very much misinformation. Uh but they have a strategy and they know how to play it for sure. Yeah, that's one thing that's become painfully obvious. Um, for for me, you know, I've battled on the air against the ideals of PETA and HSUS and CBD for 15 years. But then when Texans from Outline showed up in my lap this past summer, that was the first time I realized firsthand how well-funded and organized these groups are way more than us the opposition you know like we're we're always reacting uh so that's why howell sportsman's alliance sci i think keeping up with all of their call to actions all of their press releases is is so important so that we we don't we're not always on our heels and we know what's coming um because for far too long us sportsmen as a community have just reacted to whatever they threw at us and we were unprepared for it. So I'm glad to, uh, to hear that SB 90 based off of what you said, probably is going to die in committee. Yeah, Uh, I'm certainly still, still knocking on wood for, for that statement. But, uh, you know, I, I do want to flag the great work that, that Howell does as well, because in that hearing yesterday, uh, some of those decision makers on that committee flagged how much comments they got in opposition of this bill. And I think Howell was responsible for the vast majority of of organizing those comments because uh, a lot of these rural decision makers, you know, don't want to see the horse become this ultra protected species because they're dealing with ranchers and public land users and you have to hear firsthand. And even they said they're getting emails from their constituents that 75% are in opposition of this bill. So comment collection uh, is definitely a super important process of of everything. Uh, You know, in my perfect world, I wish wildlife management could go nowhere near a voting machine or state legislation, Uh, but that's not the world we live in. And so I think, you know, as hunters, our, our best option is to uh, you know, gather our voices to submit our opinions. And a lot of, you know, we're one of the few 
users on the landscape that have boots on the ground almost year round, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the fall. Uh, and I guarantee you, uh, we're seeing a lot more firsthand of what's happening on our landscape than some of these other people are. So let me ask you, you know, I, I come from a state that's 98% privately owned. I don't know what Nevada's breakup breakdown is of the private landowner versus federal or state owned land. What happens when these horses get on your property though? Like, do you have any recourse of, uh, you know, like, I mean, if it was a feral hog in Texas, we just shoot the damn thing. Like, obviously you can't do that there. So what is, you call the state and be like, Hey, you need to come get these horses off. Or you try to drive them off yourself. What are you supposed to do? Cause it's their problem. Really? They're dumping it now into your lap because of their mismanagement. Yep. And so Nevada is actually almost the inverse of, of Texas. We're 86% public land and mm. 65% of that is just Bureau of Land Management, the BLM. Uh, but to kind of go back to your question, uh, it, you know, if a horse goes onto your land, the, the state's going to say, don't touch it. You know, they're there. I mean, they're one of the most federally protected outside of an endangered species that you can get. Uh, and And that's what's so... Frustrating is because the states have proven time and time again that they're able to manage the state's wildlife on behalf of uh, citizens, but they can't do anything with this overpopulation of horses because of a law that was passed in 1971 that essentially says, uh, you know, you harm it or harass it, you're going to jail. And there's been, you know, reports of, of people shooting horses and you know, the next day, these wild horse advocates will have a reward for $20,000 for any information leading up to it. Uh, oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they, I mean, really, they are probably the most protected invasive species that I can imagine. Uh, it's just criminal. And, you know, we deal with our feral hog problem appropriately here. But again, people are going to think that I hate horses, like after listening to this, but I don't. I mean, horses are great but they don't they're just like feral hogs in this situation they don't belong there they don't they just don't they're not a part of the landscape so why are we treating them putting them on this pedestal is beyond me um so right uh, and then yeah real quick i think it's important to to say like everyone that who is involved here in nevada as far as organizations on the, the opposite end here um you know we don't want to remove every single last horse all we're trying to do is manage them like we do our our wildlife and bring them down to an acceptable level where they can mm-hmm. live on the landscape in partnership with everything else that we we cherish and, and wild animals go um but you know i i think that the if i had to ask these horse groups one question it would be when is there enough horses on the landscape because at some point it's going to be nothing but horses and burrows on the landscape. And we're not going to have sheep, deer, elk, antelope on the landscape. And it's just going to be horses. And I, if I drew a horse tag, I'd be the first one out there cutting it up and and eating it. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's the, the blaring question I I definitely want to ask is, you know, when there is enough. And during that hearing, the argument they tried to make is, horses are native to the United States. And the one of the a great rebuttal I heard on the opposing side was from a, a Native American here in Nevada that said, you can look at every rock are here in the state and you're never gonna find a picture of a horse. 
So mm. don't keep saying it's it's native. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Uh, you know, I mean, pheasants aren't native. We manage them. That red fox back there, thats I don't think they're originally native to the United States. I think they came from uh, Europe or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, we have chucker. I mean, we have one of the best chucker hunting states here, and, and those came from Pakistan. And we have the, the Himalayan snowcock in the Ruby Mountains, which certainly didn't come anywhere. Um, it's the only place you can hunt those. So, you know, and, you know, you talk about conservational animals, Colorado and Montana and Idaho, you know, they're all dealing with wolves and, mm-hmm. you know, essentially not Colorado yet, but, you know, we'll be managing those as well. But, you know, because of that 1971 Horse and Burrow Act, uh, you know, they have horses have this uh, untouchable creed on them now that you just you can't go near them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Charles, I appreciate you putting this together, man, as always. Uh, Everett, thanks for writing up the call to action. Enjoyed reading that. Thanks for keeping us informed. And uh, Russell, thanks for giving us the uh, the firsthand account of what is going on in Nevada regarding the, you said 50,000 wild horses and burros on a landscape that can support maximum 13,000. That's insanity. So uh, I think it's 60, right? 60,000. Yeah. I, I was just kind of being conservative on that number. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've heard anywhere from 40 to, to 60,000, uh, but certainly more than 13. And, you know, I can say our mule deer, certainly aren't over four times what need to be and neither are antelope bighorn sheep and elk and i would argue i don't have the facts to support it but i would pretty much be confident in saying that you know those big game animals bring in a lot more money for the state than someone having to drive to carson city just to see a horse and then fly out uh but right i don't know what the thinking is behind that yeah you'd still be able to see them you know, even if the numbers are reduced, they're going to remain there, but something needs to be done. I do think at a certain point, um, because of what's going on in Arizona at a pretty extreme level, and of course, Nevada, that this bill needs to be revisited um, because it's going to get out of control. This, and, the one from 1971? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think visuals are really important. And uh, Cable, you're I didn't know this until right now because I was looking up the name of it, but it's on the action. Um, it's called Horse Rich and Dirt Poor. Um, it's by um, Finn and Fur Films, who um, your best friend Ben Masters mm-hmm. is, uh, is a part of. But I didn't realize it. I don't think he's in the video. Um, but it's a really good video. It's like 15 minutes long that just shows visuals of here's where there's horses. And then here's a fence and here's what the habitat would look like if there weren't any horses. And, and they go into the, um, the trout, what's the name of the trout? Um, the little haunting. Yeah. Um, they, they go into, um, the, um, uh, the effects that it's having on the trout and, and of course other wildlife around it, but you can see it's, I think, you know, just super important. You can really see the effects that all these horses are having. And what I mean, all these horses, they're going to a canyon and there's like hundreds of horses just coming out of this canyon. You're like, oh my God, they're yeah. just everywhere. And so I, I think everybody should watch that. Um, it's um, I think it really it adds to the severity of this of this case. 
I have one more question for Russell, and I don't know if you have this information handy, but what would you say is Nevada's elk population? What is their mule deer population? And what is their sheep population? I'd be willing to bet that if you combine all of them, it's close to 60,000. Like, I don't know. It maybe is a little more, but I, I doubt you have 60,000 elk. Yeah, I, I I would probably agree with you there. And yeah, I don't have those numbers. You damn sure don't have 60,000 sheep. You probably have a couple thousand. Like Right. But I mean, I, I don't have those exact numbers, but what I can tell you is uh, this year, sorry if you can hear my dog barking, um, the Nevada Department of Wildlife reduced their mule deer tags by 40% across the board. And they even cut 43% from the junior tags. Uh, so our mule deer population has just fallen off the cliff fast. Our elk populations, I would say, holding steady to slightly increasing. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's good. It's certainly not doubling itself every four years like the wild horses. Um, and then, yeah, our, our antelope and bighorn sheep are... Uh, you know, at best maintaining, if not going down slightly because of the drought and, you know, horses do not get along well with those species. You know, when horses go to a watering hole, they kick everybody else out and mm -hmm. study and science have shown that time and time again, where, uh, you know, antelope are more vigilant when horses are present, uh, mule deer get kicked out and even elk can't compete with a group of horses when it comes to water. And so they really are the, the big bad bullies on the landscape and are negatively affecting the, the native wildlife. Well, there needs to be uh, a precedent set. And I, you know, I don't know if Nevada will be able to do anything about it, but just darting them and removing them, like you said, financially, it's just not feasible. So we keep well, going back to what happened. Charles just said about reversing that law. Like there's, Lethal yeah. removal needs to be considered. This I just can't wrap my head around any other solution. And, and people don't want to hear that, it, right? Like, yeah, the horses that are going to the holding centers also, I forget, it's in the millions of dollars that's coming mm -hmm. out of taxpayer money to just feed these horses, which then, now are they wild anymore? You know, I mean, it, it's just, it's crazy. They're in, in Arizona, I don't know if there's a situation in Nevada, Russell, but in Arizona, they've been able to differentiate some of the horses as actually feral horses and then wild horses. So they actually can, because what happened is there's there's wildfires, horses got off of an Indian reservation, so they weren't wild. And now they're living in certain areas in Arizona and they've traced it back like, all right, these aren't the wild horses that are protected under the Wild Horse Act. These are just escaped horses. They are truly feral in that definition of how they're looking at it. Is there a situation like that in Nevada or are they all, is it or no? Yeah, I, I don't think there is. Um, but I also believe that's, you know, it's one of the, the easy rabbit holes to go down without really getting to the core of the situation is, you know, this discussion of, you know, what should we call these horses? Um, you know, at the end of the day, there's just whatever they are, there's too many on the landscape and need to be removed. Uh, and you know, I've heard of every excuse from the wild horse and burrow advocates, you know, on, you know, why there isn't technically enough horses on the landscape and none of them have been based in science. And, you know, that's, I personally just call them non-native because that's the position I can defend pretty, pretty aggressively with, with science. But, 
uh, you know, certainly whatever they are, they need to be reduced by two thirds. No doubt. No doubt. Well, guys, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks uh, to each one of you for making time for us today. And, uh, and today it's Nevada. You know, next year it might be Arizona or Colorado or, you know, name the Western state. It's affecting all of them. Montana, uh, Everett, you said you guys only have a couple hundred. You know, give it a couple years. If they're multiplying 4x every year, uh, you know, you're going to have a problem on your hands too. So going back to just saying how proactive we have started to become as a hunting community. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just say, uh, you know, 200, no big deal. I don't know. It seems like, uh, that could very easily spiral out of control, but, um, but yeah, thank you guys so much for the time today. And, um, and Russell, again, thanks for writing the uh, call to action and Charles for doing the research on whether it was, uh, something that had legs or not. We certainly appreciate that as well. Yeah, yeah. Everett was the one who did the the call to action. I just kind of supplied the the background info. But you know, the one thing I do want to leave everyone with is, you know, now is more important than ever to have hunters get engaged in these type of of legislative processes. And and big shout out to Howell for really kickstarting all of that and bringing everything that we are concerned about to light. Because, like I said, uh, I don't think wildlife management has any place in the voting machine. Um, but that's where we are. And, and so as hunters, we need to, to start being engaged in this. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Charles, quick question. This is, this is a conversation for another day, but since we have you here, have you heard of uh, wildlife for all coming out of New Mexico? Oh yeah. Um, no. I've, uh, quite, quite a bit the beginning probably in Washington state, they're kind of behind, um, one of their arms, um, Washington, Washingtonians for wildlife. I don't know, mm -hmm. but they're basically an arm of wildlife for all and the whole recommissioning, um, mm -hmm. that whole thing that they have. Um, I think that's going to be yeah, our very, next, our next very, big thing that we're going to have yeah. to fight is wildlife for all in the mentality of, yeah, just rewilding and taking hunters and sportsmen out of the equation from wildlife yeah. management. And I, I was talking with Gabriella Huffman of the uh, District of Conservation podcast recently, and she brought that organization up. And then I, I told her kind of a disturbing um, message I got on Instagram from a student at Virginia Tech, and his the head of his of the department there, the senior class, was saying that hey, on the university level, we're we're going to move away from teaching that sportsmen are vital in the management process and start making it a more, and they use the word inclusive. It's gotta be a more inclusive deal, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. We gotta have that in wildlife management now. Uh, so I think, I don't think those things are uh, unique. I think they're, I think they're um, connected. And I think we're gonna be dealing a lot more with that moving forward. Yeah, they, they say they wanna democratize uh, wildlife management. Um, we should let's just use a different put put this in a different field um let's democratize brain surgery let's let's bring that <laughs> to the polls and the public should vote on what the best practices are for brain surgery because we know so much about it right right um we we honestly have to look at this the same way and it's it's um it's nothing but 
at the end of the day, it's nothing but a giant money making machine because that's what they're really good at. And they're really good at messaging and convincing people um, to think their way and, and persuading. But unlike our money making machine, which funds conservation, theirs just exists to sue state and federal wildlife agencies. Yeah. They don't give anything back. But it's a real call to action on our part. Like we have to do. We're decades behind and there's nothing we can do to change that but we got to do something major i mean major um to 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 reach the people that we need to stop reaching hunters stop caring about that you know we can get more of those people involved we need to reach the non-hunting public with our side of the argument mm -hmm. that's what they're so good at and yeah wildlife for all is um you got people sitting on their on their advisory board who just well now it's a year and a half a year and a half ago were commissioners on um washington state's wildlife commission mm. now they're on their advisory board and then colorado just hired a new director who came from washington state um who wildlife for all is supporting there's they're very strategic they're very smart um they're they're trying to do this in 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 a lot of states and get a foothold um in those oh, yeah. states and in the university system like for that yeah for that and i'm gonna have that guy on in june i'm gonna interview him and say hey why i'm not gonna throw his student's name out there and be like this is what your student told me and yeah. you know why are we moving in this direction as uh college professors in the university system saying that hunting really going forward into the future has no place in wildlife management like how do you justify that that's uh, but that's the, you know, that's the thing. And fewer and fewer of those students that are pursuing those degrees are actually hunters and, and anglers. They're doing it from a place of, oh, yeah, let's save the wildlife. Okay, well, then let us do our job as sportsmen and sportswomen because we're damn good at it if you just leave us alone. I know you're trying to wrap us up, Cable, but I had a conversation with the, the director of the wildlife program at the University of Montana here in Missoula. Mm -hmm. And they have a class that is dedicated to the idea of, hunting is conservation and it's a vital part of wildlife management. And Delta Wild uh, Waterfowl has a program that they work with a lot of different universities to bring experiences to these students who are, they're urbanized and, and they, they've never had uh, their own hunting uh, experiences. And so they take them on the first hunt, right? And I've, mm -hmm. I've worked with them on uh, Canada geese hunts. And, and, and so just trying to give them that positive exposure to hunting and show them that it's a vital, vital tool. So there's, there's a handful of uh, um, chairs that the Boone and Crockett Club, they have funded in, in these universities, and they're really working with these wildlife students to help them see that part. So hopefully that'll combat maybe a little bit what's going on yeah. over there in Virginia. It's encouraging for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good stuff today, my friends. Thank you guys, Russell, Everett, Charles. Appreciate each one of you. And uh, yeah, very important stuff. So thanks for making time. Thanks, Gabe. All right, take care. Yeah, they don't use no pesticide. But when it comes to services, I really don't care. Just bring them to me two at a time. I drink country cool. Just like that morning.